sinners and different kinds of sins are treated differently, mostly because of the danger they pose uh, to the body. Matthew 18 is uh, more specifically applied to the laity, that is the non-leadership of the church in their moral failure and failure in the faith. So we covered that, but then we talked about those that would divide the body, the church, and also those that would uh, impose false teaching upon the church. And uh, those procedures follow along with Matthew 18, but they're not given as many chances to repent. Okay, the, the laity are given three chances to repent before they're uh, excluded. And, uh, but those who are divisive or those that are uh, pushing false doctrine upon the fellowship of the church, they only get two. And, uh, and then they have to be removed if they will not repent. Well, today... Uh, we're moving on to a, a different issue. Of course, that's uh, what happens. What do we do when pastors or elders fail uh, morally, uh, theologically? Uh, those that Christ has granted authority to lead the church through the teaching of the word and by example. What do we do when those things fail? What procedure do we follow when they're unrepentant? And I think the other real question that must be asked is how do we protect the people of God from those who are called to protect the people of God when they fail? Yeah. So that brings us to 1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 19 through 21. And then actually we have an example of Paul uh, following through with his own instruction uh, with no one other than Peter. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2. So when we're done with the exposition of 1 Timothy 5, we're going to go to Galatians 2 and look at Paul in action. And uh, it must have been quite the showdown, the two chief apostles going at it. And uh, must have been an intense encounter for them. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Timothy 5, 18 through 21. Am I in the right? 19. Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful Lord, I'm thankful that um, you, you've given instruction to keep myself and the elders accountable. And Lord, you've given these instructions that you might protect your sheep from leaders who fail. And it is always the sheep first. And so I thank you for the instruction. I pray that, uh, Lord, that you wouldn't just inform our minds, but you would give us the conviction, Lord, when issues like this arise that we'll have the courage and the strength to do what is right. So Lord, teach us and um, grant us grace this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Turn back, if you would, to verse 19. It's kind of intimidating to look over some of these things. It's like reading 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which are all the prerequisites, requirements for pastors and elders, um, but it's good. It's good. First, first and second Timothy, Titus, 
really are uh, the pastors and elders, their, their bread and butter. Uh, in fact, um, in chapter 3, Paul says, I've written these things to you so that you might know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And uh, so we have these instructions uh, so that we can uh, function in the church the way that Christ wants us to. It's good stuff. So do not, Paul says, receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So addressing an elder requires an appropriate accusation, uh, which we'll talk about, and a plurality of witnesses. So let's talk about the accusations real quick. What sort of accusations are we concerned with? In, in Matthew 18, when we were in that section, we looked at how there can be accusations that are just petty, that people make, big deal, make a big deal about it. There, there can be, and there are, uh, there are differences of personality. Um, I've had people confront me, uh, rebuke me for essentially my personality being different than theirs. Um, I'm sorry that my personality is so abrasive. Um, there's differences of opinions. There's obviously there's preferences, uh, even uh, differences in philosophy, uh, which none of those things have any moral or theological significance. And so when they're brought to my attention about one of my elders, I have to ignore those. Um, it's too bad that you don't like, uh, that my elder uh, likes vanilla ice cream, uh, for example. That's a preference. Or has a certain opinion, uh, uh, things like that. And also, pastors and elders, as you've discovered over the years as, of being under my leadership, that we are broken sinners like every believer. Uh, we can have uh, bad days. Uh, we can be short with someone. We can come across rude on occasion, make a harmful comment. Um, it happens. Uh, I apologize in advance. Okay? Um, but if that is not the pattern of conduct for one of my elders, I don't want to hear about it. Is that fair? If it's not your pattern of conduct, I don't want to hear about it. An accusation in those circumstances is unnecessary, and a level of grace should be granted to people. Don't you believe that? Uh, and you want that grace granted to you as, as well, right? I mean, I give my wife all kinds of space in the morning. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but if that were the regular conduct of one of my elders, uh, and they were confronted for it, and it was not received, um, I would want to hear about it. Is that fair? I'd want to hear about it, yeah. But what are the real concerns when it comes to pastors and elders? First, uh, the elder, of course, has to meet, the pastor has to meet the spiritual requirements, the, the, the qualifications mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 as prescribed by the Holy Spirit. If he's failing in any of those requirements, it needs to be addressed. Second, the scriptures concern themselves with sins of morality and theology, that is doctrine. Okay, what it is they're teaching. When a pastor elder fails morally, um, it needs to come to my attention, uh, whether it's me uh, or it's one of my elders. So real quick, what do I mean by failing morally? Uh, if an elder is a drunkard, if an elder is a drunkard, uh, if an elder is a womanizer, please bring that to me fast, okay? Uh, ladies, you got it? Bring it to me fast. Uh, 
and slap him first, if you like. Uh, if he is sexually deviant, uh, a fornicator, or in bondage to pornography, uh, if he takes financial advantage of people, uh, if he's mean-spirited, if he's unloving, uh, if he mistreats his wife or his children, if he's a liar or a thief, I, I think you guys, you get it, right? What does it mean to fail theologically? I guess in a nutshell, I could say if he strays in regard to what the Bible reveals about God and the gospel, okay, who God is and how it is that God saves people, and if he challenges the inspiration, authority, or sufficiency of the scriptures, needs to come to me immediately. Okay? Uh, so some examples uh, clearly is if he denies the Trinity. Um, understand that God is a Trinity. That's, that's what he is. And if you don't believe in what God is, who he is, uh, you believe in a different God, and any other God than God is an idol. You, you must believe in the true identity of God in order to be saved. The Trinity is of the most fundamental realities that we, we have to embrace. If an elder denies the humanity or the deity of Christ, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, if he denies that, uh, that's not okay. If he diminishes the atonement of Christ in any way, if he rejects the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, if he rejects the personhood of the Holy Spirit, if he distorts the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he doesn't have the gospel right. He's not saved. Okay? If he teaches that not all parts of the Bible are fully inspired, both in what they teach and imply, we've we got to do something about that. If he undermines the authority of Scripture in any way, or challenges the sufficiency of Scripture to meet man's deepest and most practical needs concerning life in general and for godliness. That's bad. Now, I realize that a man who does any of those things could be a leader in any number of organizations that fancy themselves a church. They won't serve here. And if they are serving here, uh, we will quickly move them on. Amen? So these are the kinds of sins that are worthy of an accusation especially against an elder. But Paul instructs Pastor Timothy not to receive, not to entertain such an accusation against an elder without a plurality of witnesses. Okay, no action is to be taken against an elder unless more than one person is a witness to his moral or theological failure. Any other practice, uh, I think we would all agree, would be foolish, not just for elders, but for absolutely everyone. No one wants to be accused apart from witnesses. Amen? We wouldn't want people to just drum stuff up, at least especially just one person who may have just a bone to pick with you. Uh, that happens way too often. Paul's telling Timothy that where there is an accusation, he says we have to get our facts together. We have to get them together. We can't just run with the mention of sin or whatever. Okay? The accusation might be true, but we have to understand that it's not uncommon for the accuser to be a culprit. <laughs> People are messy. Amen? And the danger of accepting uh, less than a plurality of witnesses is that we can lose a good leader. And it may just be a tactic of the devil to get that leader out of there so that he can have free reign on a church. We have to be mindful of that. But what if there are sufficient witnesses to the elders' sin, what if their testimony is true? What if it's undeniable? 
Paul says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Now at this point, uh, it's important that we pay attention to the original grammar uh, regarding the verb sinning. Notice that Paul did not say those who have sinned or had sinned, or those who once sinned, who hasn't. Amen? Yes or no? Okay, all right. I mean, John says, he who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him, okay? The word sinning is written in the present tense. That is, the elder has not stopped sinning. So Paul is describing an elder who persists in sinful behavior or he will not be corrected in his theological error. He continues in sin of some kind without repentance. He has no intention of stopping. And the implication of the passage is that He's been caught in sin of some nature by at least a plurality of witnesses. And then when they confronted the elder about it, in accord with Matthew 18, he had no intention of repenting. At that time, those witnesses are to come to the pastor with the information. And if that were to happen here at Calvary Chapel, uh, I would go to that elder with those witnesses and we would address it. Now, depending on the context, uh, the nature or the degree of their sin and how they respond to the confrontation, I would either rebuke them publicly, boy, that sounds like a load of fun, before the congregation uh, or in the presence of the other elders. But if they repent, none of that is necessary, right? I mean, who wants to be reconciled after they've been publicly rebuked after they've repented? It doesn't seem just in any way. I would go before the elders to consider an appropriate course of action and to consider whether or not they're still qualified to be an elder. But, you know, rebuking a repentant elder in front of the congregation would be inappropriate. But if they refuse to repent, um, I will bring it to the whole church. If the elder was unrelenting in false doctrine, I I would have to share that with the whole church because of the theological danger that he as a leader would pose to those who were under him. Uh, If he would not repent of moral failure like fornication or something else, that would still have to come to the body. Everyone in the church would need to know that the elder is unrelenting, uh, that he's been removed from leadership, and that he's to be excluded from the fellowship. The laity should not submit to that leader any longer. And then Paul says to bring the issue to the whole church so that all will have fear. I know that the discussion of fear is troubling to a lot of people, but within the faith, you know, fear is a good thing. People should be afraid to sin. We should be afraid to sin because sin incurs the wrath of God, his judgment, and sin harms other believers. We should be afraid of all of those things, okay? And when people witness the discipline of those who refuse to repent, the reality dawns upon them that the church as a community is serious about moral and theological purity and that there are consequences for straying. So, you know, fear is is always uh, praised as a healthy attribute uh, in the life of believers in the scriptures. And um, I think it's our lack of fear, honestly, as Paul says in Romans 3, that people sin. They're just not afraid. There's no fear of God in their eyes, he says. Now, something that wasn't addressed specifically is what if I am the one that falls into unrepentant sin? Then what? Well, the witnesses of my sin must 
go to the elders with the facts. And then those witnesses, along with the elders, must confront me. If, if my failure was moral and I refused to repent, the elders, they can force me to step down. And if that happened, John Wiley would take my place until a, a, a pastoral replacement was, was made. It's in our bylaws. Sorry, John. <laughs> if the issue wasn't the moral issue, but a theological matter, uh, if I was accused, uh, for example, of teaching um, modalism, that, that, that there's not a trinity, that there's three persons and three, uh, or I'm sorry, one person, one God who expresses himself in three persons, but they're not three distinct persons. That's, that's a, just a brief rundown of modalism, okay? Uh, if I was accused of teaching that, or if I was failing in my pastoral duties, they can also force me down to step down. The, the witnesses would still need to go to the elders and, and uh, they would need to tell them what it was that I was teaching that was heresy. If the elders agreed that I was uh, outside the boundaries of orthodoxy, then the witnesses and the elders would have to come to me. But in this scenario, everybody's Bibles would have to be opened and the matter would have to be discussed from the text of Scripture. Now, if through that discussion we don't agree and I insist on modalism, which is a, a terrible heresy, if two-thirds of the board disagreed with me on the issue of doctrine, we would each select a pastor from another Calvary chapel. I would select a pastor from one Calvary, the elders would select a pastor from another Calvary. And then those pastors would then form a committee of three other Calvary chapel pastors who would then evaluate my theology. If those three Calvary pastors unanimously confirmed that I was out to lunch in my theology or that I was failing in my pastoral responsibilities, I would have to step down and I would have to leave the church because I would just pose uh, a danger to the people here and the leadership. But if those other Calvary pastors uh, that opposed my theological position, um, I'm sorry, if, uh, I'm sorry, if, uh, if those other Calvary pastors sided with my theological position, all the elders who stood against me, they would have to step down and leave the church. And, and that's, that's, it's only reasonable, okay? First, because uh, why would they stay in a church if they believe the, the head pastor was a heretic? That would make no sense. They wouldn't be able to submit to my authority. There would just, it just wouldn't work out. You know, how can two walk together, the prophet says, unless they agree? We just couldn't coexist together any longer. Somebody has to go. Somebody has to go. One more thing, and I know that some of you have been a part of this. What if the pastors and elders do not police their own ranks and just allow sin or false doctrine to go unchecked? Or what if they quietly move an unrepentant leader to another church? Then what? Get ready for this. It's real simple. You walk or you run. Whatever you do, you find another church that loves God enough to honor his word and a church that demands moral and theological purity from its leaders. You and your family cannot remain under that kind of leadership. Forget denominational loyalty if you have any. I don't, by the way. I'm not a company guy. Uh, I'm a kingdom guy. And uh, so even if Calvary Chapel abandons uh, the fundamentals, guess what? We walk. It's that, it's that simple. We walk. Okay? We leave the movement. Okay? Must find faithful leadership that love God, 
love his word and obey it. Okay. So that's the, the basic exposition of the text. It's not a difficult passage to understand. It can be very difficult to apply. Okay. Now I'll return, I'm going to come back to verse 21 at the end uh, after we've looked at this showdown between uh, the chief apostles. So please turn to Galatians 2.11. 2.11. We are going to go through verse 19. So it's in this section of scripture that Paul is relating an incident to the believers of Galatia, uh, something that occurred in Antioch between him and Peter. And the story serves as an example of what he was instructing Timothy to do regarding sins among the leadership. Let's look at it. Verse 11, Paul says to the Galatians, says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So for whatever reason, the apostle Peter was visiting the church in Antioch, which was primarily a Gentile congregation. And sometime uh, during his visit there, Paul had to get in his face. Uh, Literally, the word is he had to stand against him, against him. Peter was guilty of doing something that deserved rebuke. He'd become a danger. So what exactly was he doing that was so bad? Paul says, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. He would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, those Jews from Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision, the Jews. Okay. So before certain men came from James, James was the pastor of the Jewish fellowship in Jerusalem. And apparently for whatever reason, he had sent a delegation of Jewish believers to the Gentile church in Antioch, probably to see how they were doing and uh, to encourage them in the faith. But you see, before these Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter would eat with the Gentiles which suggests, at least at this point in the text, that Peter was eating food that was somehow forbidden in the law of Moses. It was either food that was just strictly forbidden by the law, like pork, or it was food that wasn't prepared according to the law of Moses. Either way, it was food that no good Jewish boy would eat if he was at all concerned about the law of Moses. And so there Peter was eating in violation of the Mosaic order. But as soon as these Jewish believers from Jerusalem arrived, Peter avoided the Gentile believers at mealtime and then would eat in obedience to the law of Moses as if he had been doing it the whole time. Why? Well, as the text says, he was afraid. He was probably afraid of what these Jewish believers would think or what they might report to the church in Jerusalem as if it mattered what they thought or what they would say. But the problem is worse. It wasn't just Peter that did this. He was influencing a number of others to follow his example. Paul says, and the rest of the Jews, that's the Jews who were in the church there, also played the hypocrite with Peter, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You see, you have to consider this, the context of all this. Peter was not your average guy in the church. He was the rock upon which Christ was to build his church. It was Peter that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He was the chief among the apostles who introduced the gospel to the Gentiles. He was the great Pentecostal preacher. 
Peter was a respected authority in the church. People looked up to him. They looked up to his example and his teaching, so much so that even Barnabas, a missionary to the Gentiles, even called an apostle to the Gentiles, he was influenced by Peter's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That is, they were all pretending, they were playing the part of a Jew who was faithful to the law of Moses. They were putting on a show for these other Jews from Jerusalem. And it was the cowardice of Peter that influenced everyone else. And when Paul saw it, it was on. Okay? But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Notice the danger involved here. Peter's actions, Paul says, were misrepresenting the truth of the gospel. Understand this. Food was putting the truth of the gospel in peril. What? That deserved a public confrontation and rebuke from Paul? Absolutely. Absolutely. What is actually taught in the New Covenant, Paul is saying, was being twisted by Peter's actions. By avoiding Gentile foods and eating only foods permitted by the law of Moses, Peter was compelling Gentiles to keep the law of Moses in regard to their diet, a thing that was condemned in Acts 15 by the Holy Spirit and the apostles. There are no such laws in the New Covenant. The people of the New Covenant have no dietary restrictions in regard to food itself. The only food restrictions we have is when eating food offered to an idol would damage the conscience of another believer, or it would give the impression to others that we venerate that idol by eating the food that was offered to it. That ain't the case here. Peter was communicating to the Gentiles and to the Jewish believers who lived in Antioch that if they wanted to be well-pleasing in God's sight, they needed to eat according to the law of Moses. So look, it's because of who Peter was, an apostle of Christ, and because of the danger his example posed, distorting the truth of the gospel, that Paul confronted Peter in front of everyone, in front of the Jews from Jerusalem and in front of the church in Antioch. Peter, he's one of the most foremost leaders in the early church. He sinned publicly. When Paul caught him in the act, he rebuked him publicly because Peter's sin was so obvious, because Peter continued in his hypocrisy as a leader in the church and because he was influencing others. This is what Paul did. He stepped between Peter and the congregation. He got in his face to protect those who were behind him, from Peter of all people. Paul goes on. He says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So Peter's actions were communicating that in order to be justified by God, to be considered righteous in his sight, the Gentiles needed to obey what was recorded in the law of Moses. And because of the context, Paul's not talking about legal righteousness, but practical righteousness. He's not addressing the doctrine of justification unto salvation, being justified to be saved, but the practical righteousness that comes by way of sanctification, of of walking with God. You see, the Gentiles 
in the, the Antioch church, they were saved. They were already justified by God through faith in Christ. They weren't trying to get saved by obedience to the law. Because of Peter, they were trying to be well-pleasing to God by obeying the law. You see, the issue here is that of pleasing God after one is saved. That's crazy stuff. Peter's actions were communicating that in order for the Gentiles to live for God, now that they were saved, they would need to obey the law. He was conveying that obedience to the law was genuine Christianity. But this is impossible. It was condemned in Acts 15 by the Holy Spirit and the apostles. Man can't be saved by obeying the law, and man can't be well-pleasing by obeying the law of Moses. The old covenant does not apply to new covenant people, and neither should we impose those things on others. Okay, we're saved, and we're sanctified through faith in Jesus alone. So Paul says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So as opposed to being justified by keeping the law, those Jews who sought after Christ for justification, they discovered themselves to be sinners just like the Gentiles. Okay. Christ did not lead them into sin. He exposed their sin by way of his infinite righteousness. Their unrighteousness was just magnified under the light of Jesus's perfect righteousness. Listen to what Paul says. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Listen, through the preaching of the gospel, Paul was tearing down the Mosaic system as it were and was replacing it with the new covenant just as God intended. And therefore, if Paul were to reinstitute the law of Moses, he would become a transgressor just like Peter, who was influencing the Gentiles to keep the law that was no longer in effect. It was made obsolete by the establishment of a new covenant, as Hebrews 8.13 says. And this is so interesting. Paul is saying that for anyone to teach that we should keep the law of Moses is sinning. It is immoral to impose the law of Moses on other people because that covenant has been fulfilled and replaced. God holds no one to the old covenant and it would be wrong for us to hold them to it. And then Paul makes this bold statement in front of the Jews. He says, for I through the law died to the law in order that I might live to God. In the text there, there's what we call the Hena clause or the purpose clause. Paul says, I died to the law so that, or in order that, I might live to God. So Paul saying, the statement means that his relationship of obligation to the law had to be severed in order to serve God. He had to die to it in order to live for God. He's saying no one can obey the law of Moses as a means of living for God. God will reject it. But that's exactly what Peter was doing. And he was influencing others to do the same. And that's why Paul got in his face. He had to protect the truth of the gospel and he had to protect the congregation. He had multiple witnesses of Peter's ongoing theological error that was being communicated by his actions. So Paul got in his face right in front of everyone. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. The horror on Peter's face, the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt, his cowardice and hypocrisy exposed. 
But don't worry, it all ended well, okay? Uh, Because later on, Peter was writing one of his epistles, and he refers to Paul as our beloved brother, Paul. 2 Peter 3.15. Listen carefully. Anyone who has the courage to confront us in our moral and theological error is a beloved brother or sister. Everyone else is a coward and lacks genuine love for us. We should cherish those who are zealous for our faith, and we should keep them very, very close to us. Understand? They are our ally. Okay, back to 1 Timothy 5.21, concluding Paul's instructions to Timothy. It's like, and Paul knows, because he's done exactly what he's instructed Timothy. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. What a danger the church as a whole was in if Paul had showed partiality to Peter, right? The kind of influence that Peter could have had. So concerning Paul's instruction regarding this confrontation of sinning leaders in the church, he puts Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, under a solemn charge. And this charge, he says, is in the presence of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the his elect angels, it's all referring to what happens at the judgment. There's really no other way to communicate the gravity of this charge more than how Paul has done it here. And so Timothy, with, along with all other pastors, must execute their duty with the utmost care. And he has to do it without showing prejudice or partiality. All leaders must be dealt with justly according to the instruction of the word. They, they cannot be granted greater mercy because of the position they hold or because of the longevity of the position they held, okay? Neither position, authority, nor years of service can excuse grievous conduct or dangerous doctrine. It's their position that makes their sin so dangerous to God's people and to the glory of God, okay? As we see, no one could rise to a greater position of authority or influence than the apostle Peter, but when his actions were detrimental to the gospel and the people of God, he was reminded by Paul that no one stands above what Christ has laid down in his word. So when leaders sin and are unrepentant, the pastor must protect God's honor and he must protect the people of God from those leaders. If it is the pastor who is an unrepentant sin, the elders must protect the people from the pastor. And when the leadership doesn't have the courage to do this. The laity must abandon the leadership and they must seek out pastors and elders who love Jesus enough to obey the word. James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Okay, so not only should we hold teachers of the word to a higher standard, they're going to be held to a higher standard by God on the day of judgment. Okay, and then Peter, after he was restored by the church after his blunder in Antioch, he wrote to the elders uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying this, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. So shepherd, poimen, uh, that's you know, the noun, but he's also uh, pouring it into here as a verb. The, the, the poimen was someone who protected and nurtured. It's their, their job. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to 
the flock and how well Peter knew the importance of his example. Amen? And then just prior to Paul's beheading, he gave Timothy another solemn charge which every pastor must heed. Again, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. When pastors and elders fail to teach the word accurately, when they fail to shepherd God's people faithfully, and when they fail to live holy, they must be dealt with quickly and firmly for the sake of God's reputation, for the sake of the gospel and the sanctity of God's people. And when a leader fails to stand between the people and the danger that threatens them, or when a leader becomes a danger to the people by their own sin, they must be removed from their position. They must be excluded from the body. The fellowship of believers must come first. It is always the sheep before the shepherds. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. Lord, we're grateful for the way that you have structured your church. We're thankful that you have given us instruction on how we might conduct ourselves in the church, as Paul says, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. But Lord, you know us, that we are but dust, that we're morally frail, and that bad things happen among us, both in the laity and the leadership, from those outside, from those inside. And we need direction, Lord, on how to do it, and we need courage to follow through. So I pray, Lord, that Calvary Chapel, again, would be well instructed and would have the conviction and the courage, Lord, to obey your word in all things. Lord, we love you, and and we're grateful for you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's keep worshiping.